Good morning, and congratulations for all of you over 25. You survived the narrows of 14 to 25 that I always say are the most critical years of your life because you make so many decisions, one of which is, do I really believe this stuff about Jesus that my parents taught me when I was a kid? Yeah, you survived it. You're here. You're an adult sitting in a church with faith in Jesus Christ, wanting that faith to be nurtured and built up because you survived a very challenging time in your life. Now, all times are challenging. But we make more decisions and we're, it seems that we're more uh, vulnerable and pliable during those years, 14 to 25, when we have to decide, is the stuff my parents and their friends and my teachers and my coaches and those that try to teach me, is it really true? Whether it's about politics or faith or Chevy or Ford. And by God's grace, you've come through that and you believe that Jesus Christ is real and he's true and that believing in him and living for him makes a big difference in your life. The biggest difference. The biggest difference. The big idea. Everything is big with God. Everything about faith and life. But if you're like me, even since those years, you've been tempted to sometimes make Jesus and who he is smaller than he really, God wants him to be, his father, our father. During that time in my life, between 14 and 25, there were several epiphanies, one of which was around age 19. I won't bore you with the details, but I'll just say it this way. Before the epiphany, I grew up going to church hearing about Jesus, even giving knowledgeable assent, I believe it, and I believe that I did believe it. But around 19, uh, I was mostly self-absorbed and conceited, and through some events that happened in my life, and the Word of God being faithfully applied to me, both in church and between Sundays, during 19, I went through a dramatic change, deep grieving over my self-centeredness and conceit and confessing it and getting forgiveness. And largely, the reason I chose to be doing this and standing here and talking to people about God with my whole vocation in life is because of the things that happened when I was 19. Because I was already in college and I was heading toward being a teacher And I got a degree in agricultural education, but right then I decided I want to, after I finish this degree, I want to go and proclaim the gospel and be someone who's giving God back to people and use whatever gifts I have to do that. And it happened during those years, and that year, 19 years old. And God became bigger than he had been for me. And his message of love and forgiveness made life make sense and it became the filter through which I since then have tried to understand everything around me and it's only grown as I've gotten to know the word of God more and more and more and I'm here today to remind you my flock our flock God is really big and everything is big with him and the biggest thing is the gift he gave which is our salvation and when you are healthy in your faith Somewhere inside of you, even though you might be rather sedate in your chair, is that kind of feeling. Not, not that being Jesus, that's you. You're, you're excited that you're saved. It's a big thing in your life that you are forgiven. You know that you're a big sinner. right? In first service, 
when the kids up here were asked about sins, they, they hit all the big ones, murder, rob a bank, right? It's kind of neat. These kids, second service, they were hitting ones closer to home, like eating all the candy in the house, right? But remember, Adam and Eve sinned once, and it was huge to God, eating a forbidden fruit. And coming to faith is coming to realize, we, I am a big sinner, and God is a big God. And you know what he did for big sinners? He could have given us big punishment. Instead, he gave us his son and a big gift of grace upon grace. He gave us forgiveness in his son. Now, what I just said to you is equal to a summary of the first 11 chapters of the letter to the Romans that Paul wrote. And really, for us, our meditation today is a little portion of chapter 12. Now, Romans has 16 chapters, and I'm going to just, I gave you a summary. The chapters 1 to 5 is, you're a big sinner, and God gave you a big gift of forgiveness. Hey, Jews, you're a big sinner too, even though you're religious and you've got the old writings. Gentiles, even though you feel like you've lived a free life and been pretty good, no, you're big sinners too, but God gave everybody Jesus, which is the big gift. That's chapters 1 to 5. Chapter 6 to 8, the big gift also gives you power to say no to sin. That's chapter 6 to 8. 9 to 11, this big gift is still working in Jews and Gentiles' lives throughout God's time with them. He's predestined them all in his own way to know Jesus Christ, and they have different paths of getting to the gospel, but the gospel gets them home. That's chapters 9 to 11. And then chapter 12 starts this way. And maybe a few of you read my email that go to our church and get our emails. And maybe even a few of you read Romans 12. It starts like this. Therefore, since God did such a great thing of giving you his mercy in Christ, give up your life to him as a living sacrifice and don't be conformed to the world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and heart. And then the rest of the chapter we have it here in page 8 of your folder. Get it out. The rest of the chapter is about how God transforms your mind and makes you live an alternative life. Yep, I said it. In church, Christians live an alternative lifestyle. An alternative lifestyle compared to the world. In fact, the alternative lifestyle of the world is actually not alternative because it's still about living without God's direction to live a selfless life. The alternative lifestyle the word is to completely live for God and people in love it's the big idea it's the big gift changing you from the inside out Uh, do you remember the Christmas carol who does not right See the pictures, uh, Scrooge there? There are two different renditions of that story. The one on the left is Scrooge in the evening of Christmas Eve, and the one on the right is Scrooge on Christmas morning. Charles Dickens wrote the story. In 12 hours in his story, in 12 hours in the life of this man called Scrooge, he went through a dramatic change. His name, Charles Dickens has made it this way, is just proverbial for being Selfish, self-absorbed, stingy, judgmental, angry, 
Those are the things that mark Scrooge. But the next morning, overwhelmed with what? Generosity, benevolence, a sense of grace, and living for others and wanting to share and just glad he's got a new lease and a new chance in life. What happened overnight? He got the devil and the hell scared out of him by three ghosts. The ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. Now, something that's kind of interesting, and I brought this up because I, this, this, this story is so neat and it's so powerful that it, and it's so part of our culture, it grips all of us. And it's about change. Something that's kind of interesting, though, is a lot of people don't know this, that Charles Dickens was, a, was more of a deist than a Christian and sort of lived in reaction to the evangelical community in London at the time. So he even wrote a New Testament where he pulled it out of the New Testament all the passages about love and serving, but he, he really didn't like the thought that you had to come to faith in Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. And so he kind of wrote Jesus out of the, 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 the things that he read in Scripture, and he used his own rendition of the New Testament for his family. When he wrote the Christmas Carol, he wrote about a man converting from hate and selfishness to love and generosity, but he took, and that's his prerogative, he took Christ out and he put these three ghosts in, and if you follow it as a Christian, you can see that it's mostly about the power of the law of love changing a person's life as they learned about love is more important than selfishness. What I, the reason I point all that out is not to spoil you on the Christmas carol. I love the story. The reason is, is to tell you this. We've got that change in our lives, but we've got Jesus that really makes it happen. We've got something better than three ghosts. We have a living, risen Savior that said, Yes, you're a sinner, and I'm the big gift of grace. I died for it, and I took it all away. And it's the very thing that changes you from the scowling Scrooge to the happy one every day. And every time you come back to Jesus, it's like coming back to your own Christmas carol. You get the Christmas message that the baby in the manger is the one that actually makes you like the Scrooge of Christmas morning. Okay? Now you're saying, did he forget Christmas was two months ago? No, it just fits today's text so well. I had to share it with you. Romans 12 is about the changed life that the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, does in your heart. So now, you're ready to go with me and read the first two paragraphs. So you've got to get your folder out because uh, it's not going to be on the screen. Ready? Read this with me. I've got to get off of Matthew. Romans. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. We'll stop right there. You know that that's all like candy in a candy store for a preacher. 
I would love to give a sermon on each one of those phrases. And I know that neither do I nor you want to be here that long. But in that, those two paragraphs, there had to be some phrases, maybe more than one, but maybe there was just one that really sort of grabbed you and you thought, you know, I wish we weren't just reading through this really fast because that one right there, I got to pause on because that one's, that one's something that God is touching me saying I need to think about that so he can change me in that area. I've got an, a, a little tip for you. It'll be there tomorrow, those, those paragraphs. Take one phrase a day. There's about, I don't know, 12 or 15 of them. Take one phrase a day and make it a devotion and ask God to make that part of his change that day in your life. That's the way the word of God, living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, will work. But these are the things that God is saying to us after Romans 1 through 11, after the change that Jesus has made by giving you big salvation, these are the things that he's saying he wants to change in your life. And for us, this is big change. We're not born this way. We're born self-absorbed, conceited, and prone to be vulnerable to hurt and rejection. So God says, I want to change you. And when he does that, he wants people to see the change that he can make in a person's life. He wants people to see how he changes you. I alluded to things that happened when I was 19. I'm only going to tell you one of the things. Because it's supporting what I just said, that God wants people to see the changes in your life. I had a childhood friend that uh, went all, I went through public school. All the way through public school was one of my best buddies. We were, he was 19, I was 19. He had gotten married in his 19th year. I had not. Um, we were still friends. I had never really gotten around to inviting him to church. Remember, it was in my life. I believed in God, and, but it wasn't driving my life. Uh, he, he and his wife wanted to go out one night, and a friend from her work, who was 22 and had a little four-year-old girl, was available, so he arranged for us to have a blind date. This is just months before I started dating Mary, who's my wife today. And so I went on the blind date with them, with her. It was blind to her, but uh, I knew my friend and his wife. That was a dinner out, dancing, go home. After that date, the next day, I asked my friend, I said, well, what did Connie, that was her name, think? He said, she said she doesn't ever want to go out with you again. He would not tell me the details, but I think it had to do with self-absorbed, conceited kind of stuff. He was sparing me the details. They were gory. Okay, so that was one of the events. That wasn't that crushing because of who I was, but there were other events. And then the Word of God came in, and I confessed this and got off my... I got more involved, and God became a bigger idea in my life. And we've only, only a couple months have passed now since that date. And I started teaching Sunday school. And now I want to invite my friend to church. And he calls me up one Friday and he says, Hey, tomorrow night, Saturday night, my wife and I are going back out like we did before. And he said, Connie wants to go along. Do you want to go? He goes, It's not a date. I said, Don't worry. That's fine. I'll be happy to go. I'm not doing anything. I also wanted to invite him to church. So I didn't want to lose contact with my friend. So we're out having dinner. And I said, 
hey, church is tomorrow at, you know, 8 and 10.30, and we had Sunday school at 9.30, just about like what we do here at this church. I was up in Dallas, Garland. And, uh, you know, I hope you guys can come. And, I, and they were kind of promising to come. And this Connie girl says, yeah, when, when, what time is your church? And I thought, well, she's just being nice, you know. So, yeah, yeah, I told her what time it was. Next morning... I'm teaching Sunday school in a little room on a little hallway. The door's open. I'm teaching 7th and 8th grade Sunday school. And Connie and her, now she lived 15 miles away from that church. And her little four-year-old girl come walking down the hallway at my church. I couldn't believe my eyes. I was nice to her and greeted her. I'm still kind of thinking, you know, I'm that guy in her mind. I'm not trying to be, uh, say much. And I'm stunned. And uh, my friend and his wife slept in. So after everything's over at church, like about right now, in a little while, I phoned him and I said, hey, you guys didn't make it. And he said, no, no, we got really tired. We stayed up pretty late, so we slept in. And I said, you're never going to believe it, but your friend Connie came with her little girl. And he goes, yeah, he kind of laughed. He said, after you left dinner last night, she said, if what that church has changed him from what he was to what he is right now, I've got to find out what that is. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? God wants people to see us change. Now, I don't tell that story to say, look how I've changed. That was over 30 years ago. I won't tell you how many over 30 years I, I don't still live in the glory of that. I'm challenged by that because here's what I ask myself. If I had a Connie, not somebody I would date, I'm happily married, but a Connie in my life right now, which, would that Connie see the change and want to come see my church? If Connie is the people that I deal with in the businesses around that I have to deal with or my friendships or my church relationships, is there really, look at the passage, is, there, is this really me? God wants to see me change. And then I ask, because I'm preaching to you, what about you? Is the person that's sitting here so dutifully, the person that's in this passage so beautifully? God wants people to see how he's changed us. And truth is, is that we harden our hearts to things and we get our reasons and our excuses for not changing and they don't really see a difference. And the difference isn't in what we do or don't do in terms of social things. It's, what, it's, it's how we live with love or no love. Do they see a generosity that's beyond reason? A hospitality and an openness that is not condoning sin, but loving the person. And you know, what Paul does next is pretty fascinating. He goes from this list of love in action to love in reaction. And I think that's very important and very powerful. Well, duh, it's in the Bible, right? But it's very important and very powerful because we tend to the first two paragraphs, we tend to like, yep, yep, yep. But we get to the thoughts of the second, what we're about to read, and we go, wait a minute. This does not go with the grain of the wood of my natural heart. Because this is what he says. God's love is powerfully seen in the way he changes you 
to when you react to people who hurt you. You see, it's easier to grab on to, go do this good stuff. It's harder to grab on to, when you get hurt, go do the same good stuff even more for the person that hurt you. Everything inside of you is, no, wait a minute, I'm hurting. That was unfair. That wasn't right. And what happens when somebody hurts you is it jerks you into self-absorption again. And it does it without you even realizing it. And you go into protective mode. And you go into defense mode and fairness mode. And you forget the love mode that saves the other person. And it's the love of Jesus from the cross saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what we're doing. Or the love in Stephen who says, do not hold this charge against them. Or the love of Paul that says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Or the love of Paul here that says, do not repay evil for evil. That really touches somebody when they've hurt you and they recognize that you love them. That's the gift you gave back is love for hurting you. It seems so uneconomically, un- uneconomical spiritually speaking, or socially speaking, but it's actually wealth and riches. So, let's read it together. Verse 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The inspired Paul knows his Bible just like Pastor read from Proverbs, this passage about heaping coals of fire on the head. He pulls that as the, the, the seat that all this teaching rests upon. He says, don't repay evil for evil, but actually repay it with love. And remember when Pastor said, some, some guys that have taught this have said, well, you'll kill them with kindness. I remember asking my mom when I was little, why do, why do we, uh, what, you know, what does it mean that we heap coals of burning fire on their head? She goes, it means you kill them with kindness. And we just left it at that. I thought, something not quite right about that. This is the picture that I have come to believe is what God is saying here that I'm going to share with you. In ancient times, there was no electricity or plumbing or gas to heat your home, to cook your food, to turn the lights on. You know what you had for light, heat, and cooking? A fire. And you know how you made fire? You didn't go down and buy lighter fluid and matches or a lighter, a Bic lighter. You used flintstone or these other ways of getting little frayed pieces of bark and getting the wood spinning back and forth and, you know, you got the fire going. And once you got it going, it was a family maintenance um, moray that you what you kept it going because it's a pain to get it started again and if it's really cold and you maybe have kept it going for so long you don't even know where your flintstone is anymore because you kept it going and then what if the fire goes out what are you going to do well what do you do if you live in the neighborhood of some pretty cool friends 
and you're in the kitchen baking, and you, there's no one to run to the store for you, and it's kind of far away, and you need an egg or a cup of sugar or flour. What do you do? You what? You call them up, or you go over and you say, can you uh, give me an egg? Now, I live close to the Stelliuses and the Harringtons at our church. I've done it, right? Can you have, you got an egg or you got a cup of sugar? You've done that or you've heard about it, right? In their day, you'd call the neighbor up. No, they didn't have phones. But you'd go over there and you'd say, can I have a coal from your fire? I just need a little coal. I'll make it back home with it, right? But what if you've had bad vibes between you and your neighbor? You know how it is. You've got some people in your life, maybe they're acquaintances, coworkers, family, or neighbors in your, on your street. You have invisible signs in your yard, and you know what they say? Don't dare come ask me for anything. But what if, in ancient times, the neighbor, even though their kid had thrown rocks through your stained glass window... What if they came over and they had a pot that they carried their things on their head with and they said, could I have just a little coal? And you gave them ten coals. You filled it up. Where you went down to just one. And they saw you doing this. They said, no, 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 I just need one. You go, no, it's okay, I'll give you a bunch. You put it, And they carry it home on their head. Now does the verse make sense? It sure does. Don't give evil for evil. Instead, give a heaping amount of coal when they come looking for it. Give them a pound of sugar. Give them a dozen eggs. Fill up their car with gas. Love them big. Why? Because God wants them saved. And this is how you show them who God is. Because you were loved big by God, you can love people big and not worry about loss. An old, old story that teaches this, and I'm closing with this. Uh, I know I'm going to struggle to pronounce the French, but it's uh, La Miserable. Did I say it right? The Miserables. Heard of it? So there's this guy, Jean Vejean or something, right? I know the story, but I just, this, this French, I'm just way beyond me. Okay, so he's a bad dude, and he, he, this bishop in the church is trying to help him. And so he stays with him for a while. And he falls off the wagon, and he, one night, he's going crazy again. He steals all the bishop's silverware. He's going to go sell it and leave. And Bishop wakes up and all the silverware has gone and so is Jean. And they report it. And the officials go out looking and they find him with the silverware. They bring him back to their house. And they say, we found him. Here's all the silver that he stole from your house. Do you know this man? And the bishop says, yes, I'm upset with him. You know why? I gave him all that silverware and he didn't take the candlesticks that I told him he could have, the big silver candlesticks. And he went and got them and he put them in the bag and he said, you men can go. We're friends. Now take your silverware and candlesticks, the gift that I gave you, and be on your way. And everybody leaves but the perpetrator and he looks at him and he says, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? 
And then the bishop gets real serious. And there's two men are eyeball to eyeball. And this is what he says. Never, never forget. I have purchased your soul with two silver candlesticks. You no longer belong to fear and hatred ever again. You you belong to love. And I am giving you back to God. And that was the epiphany for that man. And he was forever changed. Now, Victor Hugo that wrote that understood what God was saying in Romans 12, even if he wasn't trying to allude to this. And you understand it too. So here's the question. If God is so big to you, are you willing to show the world by showing them how he's changed you? Well, that's really between you and God, isn't it? Amen.